be opening your Bibles this morning to Matthew 16. One year ago tomorrow, I preached on Matthew 13, 36 through 43, the explanation of the parable of the wheat and the tares. We're going to be hitting on many of those uh, same themes again this morning. Now, as I begin, I want to give two important reminders of how we approach difficult or disputable texts or doctrines in Scripture. It's the same warning I gave when I handled the parable, the explanation of the wheat and the tares. First is to be humble. I've learned that the hard way by being so confident yet so wrong so many times. The more confident and insistent I've been in my opinions and my interpretations, the more embarrassing and humiliating it's been when I've realized I've been wrong. Any of you been there before? Take it from a man who's eaten his fair share of crow. You can save yourself a lot of shame and embarrassment by being less sure of yourself on questionable issues. Secondly, we must learn to triage. Uh, We have to stand firm on the deity and the humanity of Christ the sinfulness of man, on the holiness of God, on the Trinity, on the exclusivity of Christ. We must insist that Scripture alone reveals the path to a salvation from our sins that is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. Amen. But not every hill is a hill on which to die. Our text for this morning probably has as many different interpretations as any text in Scripture. And I certainly cannot, with any certainty, tell you that my understanding of this text is the right one. It's not easy. It's not an easy text. I probably studied more for this than your average sermon, and I'm less confident in how I'm going to handle it than I usually am. Um, But I hope to explain the text as I understand it, explain why that I feel that this interpretation best fits the context of the book of Matthew, of the immediate context here in Matthew, and how that this interpretation makes the best use of the Old Testament texts to which these verses allude. So with that in mind, we're going to read Matthew 16, 27 through 28. We're really only going to get through 27. We're going to come back and hit 28 next week. We will finish Matthew sometime this millennium, I'm sure. Matthew 16, 27 through 28. For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of His Father with His angels and will then repay every man according to his deeds. Truly I say to you that there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. These verses are the fifth unexpected follow-up to Peter's great confession. Jesus used the title Son of Man for Himself more than any other title in the Gospels. And the, di- the disciples rightly understood the Son of Man as a figure who would bring judgment on the enemies of God and who would usher in an everlasting kingdom. We just sang about it, didn't we? Seated on His throne, come let us adore Him, risen now to reign. We just sang that He's reigning when? Now. We sing it all the time. We say it all the time, but then we act and many times interpret Scriptures as if that's not the case, don't we? But so, 
What about these verses would have been unexpected? Well, Peter confesses Jesus as the Christ, the Son of the living God, and he expects the kingdom to immediately ensue with victory for the people of God and judgment on the enemies of God. But then Jesus tells them that he's going to suffer many things at the hands of the scribes and the Pharisees, the chief priests and the Pharisees and the scribes, and be crucified or killed, and then on the third day rise again. And now he's telling him that the Son of Man is coming, that there's a, a, prophet, a prophesied, prophesied future coming, a coming in the future. Let's think about that. The Son of Man coming in judgment. Well, before I get to why this is difficult for us to understand, why it would be unexpected, I, I want to... What's this for, therefore, in verse 27? For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of His Father with His angels and then repay every man according to his deed. What's the for, therefore? What's the grounding of? If anyone wishes to come after me, Jesus says, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Jesus says in 24 through 26, Don't temporarily save your life because some of you will still be alive when the Son of Man comes and you'll die anyway and face judgment. That's 27 to 28. That's what I believe to be the thrust of the argument here. So let's flesh it out briefly and labor to show why it should be at least understand the text this way. Let's, let's consider first, who is this Son of Man? We're going to bounce around a lot because we want to compare Scripture with Scripture to try to get it right, don't we? Turn with me to Daniel 7, 9 through 14. When the Jews heard the title Son of Man, they couldn't help but think of the divinity and dominion and judgment of this Son of Man figure. Because Daniel 7, 9 through 14, this is rooted in the Old Testament, this Son of Man language. This is where Jesus draws it from. This is what he identified his ministry most with. And I kept looking until thrones were set up and the Ancient of Days took his seat. Of course, that's God, creator of all things. His vesture was like white snow and the hair of his head was like pure wool and his throne was ablaze with flames. Its wheels were a burning fire. A river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending him and myriads upon myriads were standing before him. The court sat. And the books were open. So the scene here is a courtroom scene with judgment being pronounced. And who is being judged? Look at verse 11. Then I kept looking because of the sound of the boastful words of which the horn, horn here represents rulers. All the rulers of the earth are being judged here in Daniel 7, 10. The boastful words of the horn. And that should put you in mind before I continue reading here in... Um, Daniel 7 of Psalm 2. Does that... Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage, it says in Psalm 2. Stay right here with me in Daniel. But I want to I jump from Daniel from one alternate text to another. And look, why do the nations rage and the peoples devise a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from them. You see the boastful words of the horn here in Psalm 2? That's all the nations of the earth, all having their claims over all the peoples of the earth. He who sits in the heavens, though, he laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. 
Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them with his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decrees of the Lord. And he said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. Do you see this parallel with Daniel 7 and Psalm 2? The Ancient of Days, he has a son that's going to be given possession of all the nations. Well, here in Daniel 7, 11, we've got the courts are set up and the horns and their boastful words are being stated. Let's return back to Daniel 7, 11. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body was destroyed and given to the burning fire. So these horns, these rulers, these nations, he will break them with an iron, a rod of iron. He will shatter them like earthenware. O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son that He not become angry and you perish in the way. For His wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are they, those who take refuge in Him. That There is an end date for all of the rule of the beasts and the horns and the rulers of all the nations where that God is going to appoint someone over all of them and there's going to be a universal rule coming where all these other powers are done away with and put under the seat of this son of his, as it says in Psalm 2, and this son of man, as it goes on to say here in Daniel 7. This is universal dominion. Look at verse 12. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away. Every foe is vanquished. We think about that too, don't we? Where every foe is vanquished and Christ is Lord indeed. That's where we get this. Jesus will be the universal ruler of all the nations of all the earth. All the dominions are taken away in this judgment. However, this verse has a but in it. There's a, this but lends to the part of Daniel 7 text that the disciples clearly failed to understand, which we'll return to in the rest of Daniel 7 section soon because to, so we can understand why this is, this is a misunderstanding, this future coming. But notice this. Second point I want to point out. The Son of Man, it says here, they understood the Son of Man to be this figure who the Ancient of Days would be appointing to have this universal dominion over all the rulers of the earth. They understood that. But Jesus tells them in verse 27 that the Son of Man is going to come. You see that in the text? Well, that's the part that they couldn't wrap their minds around. What do you mean the Son of Man is going to come? You are the Son of Man. And you're where? You're here. You see why this would be so hard for them to get? For, for them to get? Uh, you've already said that you're the Son of Man. He calls himself the Son of Man more than any other title over a hundred times in the Gospels. And most recently, here in the immediate context in Matthew 16, 13, who do people say that I, the Son of Man, am? But who do you say that I am? I, me, the Son of Man. Who do you say I am? You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. We know who you are. We know you're the Son of Man. You're the Christ. You're the Son of the living God. You're, you're the greatest ruler. You're greater than Caesar. You're greater than uh, the Herod dynasty. You're, you're it. You're the one. And now he says the Son of Man is going to come. You don't have to... They're thinking you don't have to come. You're already here. 
Everyone thought he was there to ascend to an earthly throne to judge the world right then. Do you remember John the Baptist's words from earlier in Matthew uh, chapter 3 when he says that the speaking of Jesus, that he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire and his winnowing fork is where? In hand. And he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor and he will gather his wheat into the barns and he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable heat. He's here to judge and he's here to judge right now. That, it's in his hand. He's ready to do it. That's how John thought that the kingdom would be arriving. They saw it as judgments coming in this Christ figure and he's going to put all of his enemies under his feet and he's going to do it right now. And here, behold the Lamb of God. Here he is. That's why when John the Baptist was arrested, we find later in chapter 11 that he was confused. When John was imprisoned, chapter 11, 2 through 6, he heard of the works of Christ and he sent his disciples because he's saying, I'm in jail, arrested by Herod, awaiting trial, possibly going to be executed. Why aren't you putting all these enemies under your feet and establishing your kingdom with me being part of it? What are you doing? You're not vindicating me and judging your enemies. You're not doing what you're supposed to do. And he says, are you the expected one or should we look for somebody else? Are you going to do what you're supposed to do or not? And then Jesus answered and said, Go report to John what you see and hear. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, which he adds to the Old Testament prophecies. Hey, I'm not going to do this the way you think. You can die, but there's a resurrection. And not only that, but even I can die. And there's a resurrection. That's the context here in 16 as well, isn't it? That I'll suffer many things and be killed and on the third day rise again. They couldn't wrap their mind around you dying, rising again, ascending to heaven, and there being a gap between judgment coming. They couldn't wrap their mind around that. And this is an unexpected coming, a prophesied coming. that they, Everyone struggled to understand this, that the Son of Man would delay judgment. That's why the masses tried to take him by force and make him king in John 6. Well, that's what, he, that's what the Messiah is supposed to do. That's what the Son of Man figure is supposed to do. Become king over everything, put all of his other enemies under his feet, and reign in perfect righteousness. That's why Peter rebuked Jesus when Jesus said in 21 that he was going to go to Jerusalem, suffer many things of the elders, chief priests, and scribes, and be killed and raised up on the third day. Peter rebuked him because he's like, Hey, not so, Lord. That's not how this works. You're the Son of, you're the son of Man. What do you mean you're going to suffer? You're going to cause some suffering. You're going to bring down the hammer, but you're not going to suffer. That's how they viewed it. But the, actually, if you read on and you think about all of Daniel 7... Are you still in Daniel 7? Everybody still there? If you keep reading in Daniel 7, look at this 7.12. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away. And here's this but. But an extension of life was granted to them for an appointed time. For an appointed period of time, there would be an extension. Their dominion's taken away, but there's going to be an extension of life granted to them even though their dominion's taken away. That's what it says in verse 12, isn't it? 7-12 in Daniel. And I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming, and he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. In this judgment of the beasts... And all the beasts, of the beast, one beast, and then all the other beasts that are mentioned here, we'll get into that more next week, there emerges this son of man figure who comes up to the Ancient of Days. 
We know looking back that the dominion of Satan is taken away at the resurrection of Christ and in the ascension Jesus appears before the Father and takes his seat at the right hand of the throne of God. So in the ascension, the Son of Man is going to come up. He's going to leave the earth. He's going to come up and be presented one like a Son of Man, fully God, fully man, sorry, truly God, truly man, ascending up, presented before the Father and sitting down for a while with an extension of time granted to these beasts before he returns in judgment. It's kind of there, isn't it, in Daniel? Nobody had missed that. I kept looking. Let's see. And verse 14, 714, And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which shall not be destroyed. Now we ask, how long will that extension of life be granted? Look just a little farther in um, 721 through 22, Daniel 721 through 22. I kept looking. And that horn was raging war with the saints and overpowering them until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was passed in favor of the saints of the highest one. And at that time arrived, and the time arrived when the saints took possession of the kingdom. So it seems that Daniel 7 is saying that God will judge the rulers of the earth as guilty and take away their dominion. That one like the Son of Man will come up before him with the clouds of heaven and be presented before the Father, the Ancient of Days, and be given a dominion, glory, and kingdom so that the nations might serve him in an everlasting kingdom. But in this extended time, the rulers of the earth would rage war with the saints and overpower them. There, There would be great persecution of the disciples, of the apostles, after Jesus is taken away. Just like I suffer, hey, you take up your cross and follow after me because there's going to be a time period, a little gap here before I come back in judgment and you're actually going to have to suffer before I come back and actually be this son of man figure that brings judgment on this generation of people. But then the Ancient of Days would come in judgment on the rulers of this age and the saints would take possession of the kingdom. And how does that look? Well, it looks like for the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of His Father with His angels and repay every man according to His deeds. Are you following where we're at so far? Are you picking up what I'm putting down? Okay. But we must ask, how or when will He come in the glory of His Father with His angels? Because that doesn't seem like that's happened yet, does it? Well, in the book of Matthew, it doesn't look like what you would think. Because this isn't the first time... That or, uh, this isn't the only time that we encounter this kind of language. Okay? I need you to turn with me now to Matthew 23. How do we interpret Scripture and make sure we're getting it right? You compare Scripture with Scripture. Scripture interprets Scripture. When you just read Scripture and you think, well, this kind of makes sense to me, or, or the old Sunday school answer, what does this Scripture mean to you? I don't care. I don't care what it means to you or I don't care what it means to me. You compare Scripture with Scripture to get to what Scripture actually means, right? The clearer texts help you interpret the less clear texts, right? That's the rule of hermeneutics, biblical interpretation. But read with me in Matthew 23, 29, starting at verse 29. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! For you build the tombs of the prophets, you adorn the monuments of the righteous. And you say, if we had been living in the days of our fathers, then we would have not been partners with them in the shedding of the blood of the prophets. 
So you testify against yourself that you're the sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of the guilt of your fathers. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how shall you escape the sentence of hell? He goes back to the language that John the Baptist used in Matthew 3 talking to the scribes and Pharisees and says, hey, you're, the, you're a, a brood of vipers. You're not offspring of Abraham. You're going to be judged at a coming judgment. And you, you are going to be judged just like your fathers before you who killed the prophets. You're going to continue killing the prophets. And, it, you're, and ultimately this season of time is going to be extended to you and then judgment's going to come later. Does that sound like anything you've read in Daniel 7? It does, doesn't it? Like, I know you're going to be judged, but there's an extension of time being granted to you, you leaders. And judgment's going to come later. You're going to fill up the measure of the guilt of your fathers. And how will you escape the sentence of hell? Therefore, behold, I am sending you prophets and wise men and scribes. Some of you you will kill. Some of them you will scourge in your synagogues. Guys, is this future or is this all already happened? That's the disciples. That's the apostles. That's the reason Jesus told them in our immediate context, take up your cross and follow me. For whoever saves his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake shall find life. They were the ones that were sent after the resurrection and they suffered the same fate that Jesus did, being, being persecuted and killed for their faith because the horns were raging war still against the saints for a particular period of time. Does all this still work in your minds? And it would be where they would scourge you in the synagogues. This is all a very Jewish-centric text, isn't it? And they will persecute you from city to city, so that upon you may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on the earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Truly I say to you that all of these things will come upon who? This generation. Is this talking about future or is this talking about on this generation? Some of you will not taste death till you see the Son of God coming into His kingdom. All of this will come upon who? This generation? Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I wanted, you to, get, I wanted to gather you together, your children together, the way that a hen gathers her chicks, but you would not or you were unwilling. Behold, your house or your temple is being left to you desolate. For I say to you that from now on you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now look at 24 verse 1. Then Jesus came out from the temple and was going away with his disciples and came up to the point out the temple buildings to him. And they, So they said, Hey, look at all these beautiful, wonderful, big, amazing temples and all these buildings all surrounding everywhere. And Jesus says, Do you not see all these things? Truly I say to you that not one stone here will be left upon another which will not be torn down about the temple and all the buildings in Jerusalem, that city at that time. And as he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately and said, Tell us when these things will happen and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age. A future coming and the end of the age. Coming what? Just like he said, the Son of Man is going to come and he's going to render each man according to his deeds. When are you going to come and render to these men who are doing all these evil things, filling, fill up the measure of their wrath, and actually leave their house, their temple desolate, and tear down all of the temple and all the stones and not one stone be left upon top 
of another. You see, it's, it's the same thing. Big parentheses, and he tells a lot of what that's going to be like in 24, 4 through 26, which many people wrongly, I believe, assign 24, uh, chapter 24, verse uh, 4 through 26 to the end of time, when it's actually not about the end of time. You pick up in verse 27, though. Look with me in Matthew 24, 27. I'm not going to cover, read, and handle all of 4 through uh, 26. That'd be way too much to try to bite off. But pick up with me in verse 27. For just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes even into the west, so will, be the, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. So we're back to that Son of Man language. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. But immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from the sky and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. Does this sound familiar? does, doesn't it? You say, well, this has to be future because none of this has happened, right? Everybody reads it as end times. Keep reading with me. Verse 31. And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds and from the ends of the sky to the other. Now learn the parable of the fig tree when its branches have already become tender and put forth leaves. You know that summer is near. So you too, when you see these things, recognize that he is near right at the door. How, how near at the door? Verse 34. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Now, is that end times? If it is, somebody lived a long time. Somebody done rocking around here that's 2,000 years old. No, it happened already. It happened in the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D., the Son of Man came with power and destroyed it. But you say, wait a minute, I don't, I don't get it. This is so, this language here, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the sky, the powers of the heavens will be shaken, the Son of Man will appear in the sky. What, what, this, this language, what? It's called apocalyptic language. Apocalyptic language isn't to be taken literally. When you read, when you read... Apocalyptic language, literally, you get, you get it wrong. Apo literal parts of Scripture need to be taken literal. Poetic parts of Scripture need to be taken as poetry. Apocalyptic language in Scripture needs to be taken as apocalypse, apocalyptic language. Narrative needs to be taken as narrative. You have to take the genre of Scripture that you're reading or you're going to miss it. This is just language that's used also throughout the Old Testament. It was used in the same way of massive hyperbolic language of judgment that came on many nations in the Old Testament. The same kind of language is used of those nations and it didn't happen literally there either. It was metaphoric language, catastrophic language being used to highlight the extent of the judgment and how everybody would know about it. Did everybody know about what happened in 70 AD? Everybody did. The whole world knew about it. You still read about it today in history books. Not just, not just the best history book ever written, the Bible, but everybody knew about it. And even the, the kings uh, and the, 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 that orchestrated the destruction of, is, of Israel, of the temple, of Jerusalem, they saw themselves as bringing judgment on a wicked people. It's even written that way. You say... Well, wait a minute. The, 
coming in the glory of his Father with his angels. Well, you've got to realize how the Bible uses this language. Think, when Assyria judged Babylon, what does it say about Assyria? It says it was God's rod, doesn't it? That Assyria was the rod of God bringing judgment on the Babylonian Empire. Now we have the Romans being God's rod bringing judgment on the Jews. It is the glory of the Father. God is the one that raises nations up, and God is the one that puts nations down. And God used the Roman Empire to bring judgment on these wicked Jewish people. Perhaps a people more wicked than them, but he uses more wicked people often to judge people according to his purposes. Galatians 3.19 says when it's the angels that mediate and enforce the law. That Remember when Herod was struck by the angel of the Lord in Acts, Herod Agrippa in Acts 12.23, and it says that he was eaten by worms and fell over dead? When people saw him stand up before the people declaring himself to be God and fall over dead, did they see any angels? No, they just saw Herod fall over dead. But the Bible tells us, we know from Scripture, that it was an angel of the Lord that struck him and he got worms and he fell over dead. So when it says angels are involved, you've got to realize that doesn't mean somebody saw a little angel. When the Bible mentions angels, angels are spirit beings and often they're invisible to the naked eye. There's angels everywhere. We have a bad angelology. You think you're going to see physical manifestations. God does that sometimes in Scripture, but every time that angels are present, angels are doing something, you're not literally seeing them. Not every time. Sometimes. But not every time. So, angelic warriors aided the Romans in judgment. That the angels fought on the side of Rome against... The Jews. And look, now, go back to Daniel. Go back to Daniel. 24, uh, Daniel 9, 24 through 27. And then we're going to read 10, 13 through 14. I'm going to show you how the, the Son of Man language we saw in chapter 7. Now look what you find going through the rest of the book of Daniel. So you can see how the context, how Jesus understood the book of Daniel and how you see this playing out also in Matthew's gospel. You've got the prophecy of weeks in Daniel. We're going to pick up at verse 24, Daniel 9, 24. Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end to sin, to make atonement for... So look at that. Seventy weeks have been decreed for your holy city to finish the transgression. Remember the fill up the measure of your wrath that we read in chapter 23? You remember that? To make an end of sin, to make an atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, to anoint the most holy place. There's going to be 70 weeks. It's, it actually, we, uh, this all plays out to where it all lands at the crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus if you do this. But I can't preach all through this text this morning. But so you are to know and discern that from the issue of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be 70 weeks and 62 weeks it will be built again with plaza and moat even in times of distress. Then after the 62 weeks the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing and the people of the Prince who come 
who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary, and its end will come with a flood, even to the end. There will be war. Desolations are determined. Your temple I leave to you desolate. And he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week, but in the middle of the week he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering, and on the wing of abomination will come one who makes desolate even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed is poured out on the whole who makes it desolate. You've got the prophesied coming destruction of the temple here in chapter 9, don't you? And now look at 10, 13 through 14. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia, these are demonic powers, was standing withstanding me for 21 days. Then behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, that's an angel, Michael the archangel, came to help me, for I had been left there with the kings of Persia. Now I have come to give you an understanding of what will happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision pertains to days yet future. So you have here it showing us that when there's conflict between nations and peoples, that the angels are fighting in the background, according to Daniel 10. So Jesus is saying, I'm going to come with the glory of my Father with the angels. In his mind, there doesn't have to be angelic manifestations. And if it's in Jesus' mind that way, it should be in ours too, shouldn't it? If that's the way it presents it in the book of Daniel, the very book that he's citing, we shouldn't say, well, there weren't angelic manifestations, so it couldn't have happened in 70 A.D. The angels were fighting on the side of the Romans against the Jews to bring the determined desolation to the Jewish people to bring the destruction. Does everybody following all this? I know this is kind of like a history lesson. This is like chewing on gristle. This is a little harder than, than some of the texts. But we need to understand what God's Word is saying. That's what's going on here. And He then will repay every man according to his deeds. Well, how are we to take this? I think this is the way of God all the time. He always pays men back according to their deeds. The wicked do not ever go unpunished. Every man is judged. But the immediate application of this in Matthew is for that generation who is rejecting the kingdom and will be judged in 70 AD. And why do I say that? Well, turn with me again over to Matthew chapter 10. You're going to match up the same language we're seeing here in Matthew 16 and that we see again in Matthew 23 and 24. and see much of that same language repeated in Matthew 10 in the missionary discourse. Look with me beginning in 10, 14, and 15. Whoever doesn't receive you nor heed your words as you go out of that house or that city, shake the dust from your feet. Truly I say to you, it will be more tolerable for that land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. It's literal cities that are rejecting the actual ministries of the apostles that this judgment is going to come, a judgment more severe than what happened in Sodom and Gomorrah. Look at verse 23. Whenever they persecute you in one city, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not finish going through the cities of Israel until... What's it say? Until when? Until the Son of Man comes. This generation will not pass away. See the time stamps every time Son of Man's mentioned? It's many of you will not taste... Some of you will not taste death until you see the Son of Man coming. This generation will not... Uh, pass away until the Son of Man comes. You will not finish going through the cities of Israel until the Son of Man comes. 
all of this same language over and over again about the coming judgment on that generation of Jews for rejecting the Messiah and then the messengers who he sent with the message of the kingdom. Keep reading, verse 24. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a slave above his master. It's enough for the disciple that he becomes like his teacher and a slave like his master. If they have called the head of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign the members of his household? Therefore, do not fear them, for there's nothing concealed that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be made known. What I tell you in darkness, speak in the light. and What you hear whispered in your ear, proclaim from the housetops. Do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a cent, and yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? But the very hairs of your head are numbered, so do not fear, for you are more valuable than many sparrows. Therefore, whoever confesses me before men, I will confess him before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will deny him before my Father who is in heaven. Now look with me at verse 38. He who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it. Whoever has lost his life for my sake will find it. He who receives you receives me. Speaking to these disciples, if, you, if they receive you, they're receiving me. Whoever receives me receives him who sent me, the Father. He who receives a prophet in the name of a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward. This word for reward here is the same word used for he will... Uh, uh, um, let me read it... He will repay every man according to his deeds. The word for reward here is the same word. So people that receive the ministry of Jesus or the prophets or apostles that he sent, they are receiving a righteous man's reward. And whoever in the name of a disciple gives to one of these little ones even a cup of cold water to drink, he shall not lose his reward. The Son of Man will come back and judge. And those who believed the message of Christ, that he was the, that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God, that he was the fulfillment of the temple sacrifices, that he was the King of kings, the Lord of lords, that he was who he said he was and that he had actually raised from the dead, they would not be judged in the coming judgment. That they would be the ones that would listen to these prophecies and they would get out of Jerusalem, which they did. The Christians got out of there. Why? Because they knew that Jerusalem wouldn't be able to stand. The Jews believed that they would withstand and that they would be fine, and they were slain, killed, terrible slaughter. But the Christians believed the words of Jesus, saw it coming. And you find this also throughout all of the, um, all the epistles and the book of Hebrews. It's all pointing. Even the, I would argue even the book of Revelation is all pointing to this coming judgment on that generation to warn them to get out of Jerusalem. Because the destruction's coming, and it's coming very soon. The next time the Son of Man language is used is in, you're, you're in 10. Look with me at 11, 18 through 24. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a, de a demon... But the Son of Man came eating and drinking. And they say, Behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. Then he began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles were done because they did not repent. They're going to end up killing John, and then he's, they're also going to end up killing Jesus, right? 
But he says, Woe unto you, Horazine, woe unto you, Bethsaida, for if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Nevertheless, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you, than for you cities, cities that existed then, real cities, that were going to be judged at that time by the Son of Man when he came back in judgment after they had crucified him. And you, Capernaum, you will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will descend into Hades. For if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. Nevertheless, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. And then next, one more time, chapter 12, 32-42, you're going to see this again. Whoever shall speak a, a word against the Son of Man... It shall be forgiven him, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. You'll know a tree by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you be evil, speak what is good? And then verse 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. And he said to them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, yet no sign shall be given but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And then he would raise, be ascended to the right hand of God. That would be the sign to them. And they would have a time period where they would be able to repent before destruction came on that generation of Jews. The men of Nineveh, though, will stand up with this generation at the judgment and condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. But something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up with this generation. Notice it's this generation, this generation, at the judgment and condemn it because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Judgment came... And the judgment was that much more severe because they killed Jesus. He gave them the sign, rose from the dead, ascended before the Ancient of Days, sat down at the right hand, being given dominion, but then a time was extended to the rulers of this earth. They didn't take that time, and he comes back in judgment and judges all of those cities and all of those peoples in 70 AD for their continued rejection over the course of the next 40 years. Crucifixion of Jesus right around 30 Destruction of the temple, 70 A.D., 40 years is exactly how they looked at a generation in the Scriptures. When it says a generation, this generation, it's talking about a 40-year period. I think it fits pretty airtight. I don't know how to go anywhere else with it, reading and reading. and I've read other things and they just they don't handle it all. Or they, they do gymnastics to bypass some of the things that just seem so obvious. You won't taste death until the kind of son of man comes in his kingdom. How are you going to get past that? And you're going to see it elsewhere in the New Testament too. Turn with me real quick. We're almost done. But turn with me to uh, Luke 19, 8 through 14. You have Zacchaeus. And this story, of course, where Zacchaeus receives mercy, this tax collector. Behold, Lord, he says, half my gifts I give to the poor. If I've defrauded anyone, I'll give him back four times as much. Jesus says, today salvation has come into your house because he too is the son of Abraham. For the son of man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. When he was here the first time, he wasn't bringing judgment. He, was, he came to seek and to save that which was lost, right? 
He's, having, he's extending mercy. He's not coming to bring judgment. While they were listening to those things, Jesus went on to tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem and they supposed that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. They thought that the judgment and the kingdom of God, that this setting himself up over all the nations of the earth was going to happen immediately. So he gives them a parable. And listen to the parable. A nobleman went to a distant country to receive a kingdom for himself and then return. Isn't that what we saw in Daniel 7? He goes to receive a kingdom for himself. He goes to heaven, is presented before the Ancient of Days, receives the kingdom, and then he's going to return. Right? The, that, that's what he tells the people. Using the, in the midst of this Son of Man language, in 19, Luke 19.10, the Son of Man as this time came to seek in the same way, that, that which is lost. They think that the uh, kingdom is going to appear immediately, and they're mistaken in that, that the judgment's not coming yet, and he tells them a, par a parable of a nobleman who goes to a distant country to receive a kingdom for himself, then return. And then he called ten of his slaves, and he gave ten minas, and said to them, Do business with this until I come back. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. I'm not going to read all the parable, but look now at 19, 26 through 27. I tell you that to everyone who has, more shall be given, and from the one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away. Those that were entrusted, that believed, that his servants, who were entrusted with things, they would have greater or lesser reward based off faithfulness. But then look at verse 27. But these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slay them in my presence. That's the coming judgment in 70 AD. I'm going to give them this delegation of time. I'm going to prolong their days. I'm going to give them this opportunity to repent. Those Jews that would repent and believe and accept the Savior, he would give mercy and more too. Those who didn't, he would slay them in his presence. The Son of Man would come in the glory of his Father with his angels and bring judgment. And he did. You see this in Revelation 1, 5 through 7. From Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth. I love that title, don't y'all? The ruler of the kings of the earth. Why? Daniel 7. All the, all the dominions taken away from them, and he's the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood, and he has made us to be a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds. Sound familiar? And every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. This coming, those that pierced him would still be alive. He would come in the clouds of glory to bring judgment, and even those that pierced him and all the tribes of the earth would mourn over him. So be it. Amen. And he's quoting there Zechariah 12.10. I will pour out on the house of David and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication so that they will look on me whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as one who mourns for an only son. That Many of, the, many of those even that crucified him realized, men and brethren, what shall we do? We've crucified the Christ. And they were given mercy and they mourned over their sins that they had, they had committed. Even those who pierced him. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. The Son of Man is executing judgment, standing in the place of the divine judge himself and taking dominion over the whole earth, judging based off of those that he planted and who therefore stand. And this judgment, I believe, took place in 70 AD. The next verse is what seals this interpretation for me. I mean, all of that fits so well when you look at the Old Testament texts and the flow of the book of Matthew in the immediate context of Matthew 16. 
But truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. This verse twists the commentators uh, of this book into all kinds of knots. You ought to read the exegetical gymnastics many commentators attempted in order to explain away what the text clearly says. But um, this is what R.C. Sproul summarizes and says, here, here are options. of What does it mean that he's coming into his kingdom, that they will not taste death till he comes into his kingdom? He says, what did this mean? And what was the time frame to which he was referring? Was he referring to the transfiguration, the mountain of transfiguration that happened six days from here in chapter 17? Many people throw that out there. Was he referring to his ascension? What he, he comes into his kingdom when he ascends into heaven. Was he referring to the Holy Spirit coming in power at Pentecost? Or was he referring to the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD? Or is he referring to a final coming in the future? Sproul throws all those out. I don't have time to handle them all this week, but that's what I'm going to try to labor to do next week is look at those options. People, many people say these different things. We're going to look at those one by one, show why that I think none of them really fit. For me, that I can see, and like I said, I'm, I want to come in humility. I don't know I'm right. I just, this is how I see it. I, show me I'm wrong, you know. Um, but uh, why that for me that he comes into his kingdom in the most real way uh, that we can understand it as he's saying it here in the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. There's a change that takes place where the, the kingdom is taken away from them and given to a people bearing the fruit thereof when the temple and the synagogue is done away with. But we'll, we'll be handling that next week. Okay, that was hard. I hope you benefited from it. That was laborious for me to chew on and study through. But that's why we don't... When you do expository preaching, you don't dodge texts. And if you don't know what they mean... I'm not going to tell you just some fluffy something. I'm going to actually try my best to actually say, okay, what does this actually mean? Come to some conclusion and then preach it to you. That's all I know to do. And sometimes that's easy and on face value and easy to see. And sometimes you've got to do some digging and jumping around. But I hope you profited from it. Now, what do we do with it? If all that was in 70 AD, what's our application for us today? Well, I want to, I'll say this. Um... What was true for that generation of Jews is true for us as well. There's an end day coming. A resurrection of the just and the unjust. The final judgment is coming. And we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ and be judged on the same criteria of whether we accepted the message of Christ or whether that we didn't. You say, well, if it's all about 70 AD, what do I do? You do the same thing. You better repent. He's already shown you he'll judge. And his judgment comes swift. And his judgment comes harsh. We dare not neglect. We dare not turn away his, his pleadings and his warnings. We should take them seriously. Have you believed to the saving of your soul? Do you confess Jesus before men? Or do you deny him because of your devotion to your own perceived temporal safety and happiness? Think about that. Pray about that. Where you've came short, no. He died on the cross to pay for where we've come short. He is reigning at the right hand of the throne of God now. He's sanctifying a people working in us by His Spirit to expand the borders of His kingdom to the ends of the earth. He's already reigning and He's just getting started. To the, in the increase of His government and of peace, there will be no end. Rejoice in forgiveness and in that promise that King Jesus has won and will continue winning. Uh, we now come to the table. Um, at Maynardville Fellowship, we invite...